latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? My name is Naomi Schaefer Riley, and I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And this is Ian Rowe, also a resident fellow at AEI. And today we are excited to be joined by Timothy Sandifer. He is the vice president for litigation at the Goldwater Institute. Um, he is someone that I have relied on for years to understand a law called the Indian Child Welfare Act. And there's been an important decision about this law recently. And we wanted to have uh, Tim come talk to us about it because as you know, on this podcast, we are uh, devoted to figuring out the unintended consequences of laws and policies that are supposed to benefit children, uh, but often don't end up doing so. This is a, a prime example. So Tim, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me on. And you're right there. It would be hard to imagine a law that's more suited to the title of your podcast than the Indian Child Welfare Act. So tell us uh, if you can start. uh, Some of our listeners may be familiar, but for those who aren't, can you tell us a little bit about the history of, we're going to call it ICWA, um, so we don't have to say Indian Child Welfare Act over and over again, a little bit about why it was passed um, and, uh, and what have been some of the results since then? Yeah, I think, we was, say, I think we should say Indian Child Welfare Act to keep reminding people that child welfare should be at the center of the of this act. And it's not. That's one of the frustrating things about how okay, it but works. I like having but I like having ick in there because I feel like <laughs> that that should be a part of this. So anyway, I'm sorry. Well, Go so ahead, we'll so, now. so the act, let's just call it the act. The act was passed in 1978 in response to perceived injustices in the child welfare system when it came to Native American children. There had been decades of efforts both by state and federal governments to take children out of tribal communities and have them adopted by non-native parents, either for purposes of uh, of actually outright racial discrimination, or because the child welfare agencies often, you know, they perceived what were really uh, traditional tribal practices as a form of endangerment or uh, whatever, and so they they for that reason they would sometimes just out of bias take children from families and uh, place them with non-natives. And so this was uh, came at a time in the 1970s when there was a great deal of revived interest in the plight of native communities. And so ICWA was passed in 78 to try and redress and prevent that kind of abuse from happening. Unfortunately, in real life, what ends up happening is it actually ends up causing worse outcomes for these children. So what were the actual, if you could tell us like sort of the two or three main uh, prescriptions in ICWA that uh, that state governments and the federal government had to act differently um, toward Indian children. What did what did they have to do differently? Yeah, so ICWA is the is probably the strangest federal law in existence. What I, what I mean by that is one thing about it that's very unusual is that I believe it's the only federal statute that is only ever enforced by state officials. Every other federal law is enforced by you know some federal agency or the FBI or something. But this is a law that's, pa- that's enforced by state officials. And what it does is it creates a separate set of rules for child safety actions in court. And there you're talking about things like adoption, foster care, abuse cases, things like that. A separate set of rules that applies to, quote, Indian children, end quote. And what, one of the things it does, for example, is it requires more proof of abuse before you can take that child into protective custody then is the rule for non-native kids. Uh, It requires you to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that a child is in very serious danger before you can terminate 
parental rights. Uh, and you also have to use expert witnesses. And those are rules that don't apply to non-native children. And so the result of that is that you have to have more evidence of abuse in order to protect an Indian child from harm. As a result, Indian children are routinely returned to places that state officers know are abusive or neglectful because they are powerless to pr protect those children. The law also imposes race-based restrictions on adoption. So a child who is an quote, Indian child, and we'll get to what that means in a second. A child who's an Indian child cannot be adopted by a non-native under many circumstances. It creates this, this sort of schedule of priorities that the child must be adopted by another Native American or by, regardless of tribe, before that child can be adopted by a white, black, Asian, Hispanic family or what have you. So those are just a few of the serious legal differences in treatment between native kids and non-native kids under this law. So let me just, just step back to your original why this law came about in the first place. You said that Indian children were being adopted, outright discrimination. How was that proven? Is, is that was this was the assumption that simply because uh, a non-native person adopting the child that inherently was uh, had negative outcomes for the child that was that, that was the argument and is still the argument in, in many circles today. There's a really excellent chapter on this in Randall Kennedy's book Interracial Intimacies where he gets into the evidence that was used to back up ICWA. You know, it was congressional hearings and testimony and things. And a lot of people came and testified about how they themselves as children had been taken away from their parents and sent to, to families where sometimes they were themselves abused. But as far as scientifically peer-reviewed research, there's very little, and it is actually quite poor quality. Uh, what it, it as, as Kennedy and others, Bonnie Cleveland is another writer who is, has analyzed this, um, what they have shown is that a lot of this is anecdotal, and right. uh, a lot of it does presume that just for a Native child to be adopted by a non-Native is itself just inherently abusive and wrong, which is really a rather outrageous premise, but it, it is very popular today. Well, there's a parallel in that, I think in the 70s, and I think it still exists today, the National Association of Black Social Workers attempt to ban interracial adoption of Black children. But how are these things constitutional when we have laws that prohibit discrimination on the basis of race? Yeah, not just, not just the Constitution, but also federal statutes that prohibit it. And the answer to that is that the definition of Indian child in ICWA is really interesting. It defines it in two ways. First, a tribal member. But the other definition is a child who is eligible for membership in a tribe and has a biological parent who is a tribal member. What that means is that ICWA applies to children who are not members of tribes, but could someday become members of tribes and also have a biological parent who is a tribal member. That means that a child who is adopted by a tribal member and raised in the tribal community, speaks a tribal language, practices a native religion, and so forth and so on, would not qualify as an Indian child under this law because he or she lacks the biological parent who is a tribal member. On the other hand, if the child has the biological profile necessary to be a tribal member, then that child is considered an Indian child, even if that child has no idea that she has distant native ancestry, has never visited tribal lands, 
uh, or anything like that. For instance, the, the awful Lexi case in California in, in 2016, where you had a child whose last full-blooded Choctaw ancestor was her great-great-great-great-grandfather, I believe it was. This was um, the case that went to the Supreme Court. Well, we asked the Supreme Court to take it, but it did not take that case. This is a this is you're thinking of the adoptive couple case, okay. which also had a you know a, a situation where the child's last full-blooded Cherokee ancestor was very far in the, sometime in, in the 18th century. Now, the the reason for this is because the the law says if you could be a tribal member, and every tribe sets its membership criteria differently, but they are all based on biological ancestry alone. Nothing about culture or politics or, or language or religion factors into the analysis. And the Supreme Court has said that they regard laws that treat Indians differently as not violating the constitutional prohibition on race discrimination. And the theory behind that is that tribes are political, they're not racial. So if you're a member of a tribe, it's, it's not that you're a member of a racial group and that's different. Well, that argument might work if ICWA were different, but like I said, ICWA is based on eligibility, biological eligibility for tribal membership. So it is not based on politics. It is based on genetic ancestry, which is based on race. And incidentally, you mentioned uh, federal law. There's a law called the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act that makes it a crime to delay or deny an adoption on the basis of race. And it has one exception, and that is Indian children. They're the only people in America that it is legal to discriminate against on the basis of race in cases of adoption and child protection. Well, that that seems like a good segue to maybe talk about what the the big current case, uh, the recent decision that came down uh, was. And I know that you're hopeful about this most recent decision that it will prompt another Supreme Court review. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about that case and what most recent findings were? Yeah, so this is a case from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals where um, the case being very controversial, it got on bank review. So it was a decision by all the judges on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And they released 320 something pages of competing opinions on this issue. They're very complicated. I had to make a chart to figure out what the court had actually decided in this case. (laughs) But uh, it, it, and of course, there's a lot of different issues involved. The, I, you're right, I'm optimistic in that the court did strike down some portions of the act, particularly the so-called active efforts provision. The active efforts provision is one of these provisions that, like I said, makes, makes it forces states to hurt Indian kids. That's what this does. Under law for all other children, if the state decides that a, a parent is being abusive to that child, the state can take that child away from the parent, but the state is required to make what they call reasonable efforts to restore the family. And that means things like, you know, let's say the, the parent has an alcohol problem, the state has to offer that parent counseling services or some other way to try and prevent the breakup of the family. And that's a perfectly reasonable thing, but there are exceptions reasonable efforts, that doesn't apply if there is systematic abuse, sexual molestation, things like that. And the reason is you don't want to send kids back to families that are abusing them. ICWA, however, is different. ICWA requires not reasonable efforts, but, quote, active efforts, end quote. And nobody really knows exactly what that means, but it means something more than reasonable. And it means it is not excused in cases of systematic abuse, uh, as I've mentioned. So that means that the state still has to send these kids back to get hurt more. 
And fortunately, the Fifth Circuit said that's unconstitutional. They didn't say it was because of the race thing. They said it was unconstitutional because it forces states to do things that states don't want to do. And that's also unconstitutional. That's called commandeering. Federal government can pass laws and it can enforce those laws, but it can't pass a law that the state is required to enforce. And that was that's what's going on with ICWA. So the court and said that- just, I just wanna interrupt for one second. We, we should say that you know this is, this is a, an enormous issue that has real implications for kids. I mean, the, if you look at the most recent the 2019 child maltreatment report from the federal government, um, Indian kids are abused uh, at about twice the rate of white children in this country. And there are several uh, you know, Indian communities where you found that kids are regularly sent back to families, uh, not only that have abused them, but that have engaged in sexual abuse. Uh, you find that kids are being placed with adults where there's been a known sexual abuse problem already. And you, you have a situation where we're sort of turning this blind eye to what is going on in the lives of these actual kids. Again, are you kidding me simply because they're Indian kids? I find it hard not to get emotional about this because it's so outrageous. The statistics are not, do not do justice to the horror of the problem. The leading cause of death for Native American boys between, in, their, in their teens is suicide these are the most at-risk children in the United States. And of course, a lot of the time when we talk about Indian kids, it's easy to get the impression from the way we talk about it that they are somehow foreigners. And, and people think in their minds, I think, that these kids are foreigners because they, they're subject to the jurisdiction of tribal governments and so forth, uh, which is outrageous. These children are citizens of the United States. Every American Indian has been a citizen of the United States since 1924 and is entitled to the full equal protection of the law. And it is really outrageous that uh, they are denied that by federal fiat. We are not talking about children who live on reservations. ICWA does not apply on reservations. ICWA applies to children in ordinary neighborhoods across the entire country and to children who are indistinguishable from their white, black, Asian, or Hispanic playmates, except for their racial ancestry. And along comes the federal government and says, when these children are in need of an adoptive home, they can't have it because their, their skin is the wrong color. It literally says that this is a law that says these children are being molested and abused at home and the state cannot take steps to protect them because their skin is the wrong color. It's outrageous it, and there's no other word for it. So it's quite shocking that we allow this to exist. I mean, Tim, thank you so much for the work you're doing in this area. So you, you have to then ask the question if this data is so overwhelming and there are these barriers based on race, who is for it? So is there a segment, would you describe the Native American community as supportive? Uh, I would not go that far. What I would say is tribal governments are supportive of it. Uh, like governments everywhere, tribal governments sometimes do things that are in their interest, but are not in the interest of their citizens. And um, that is a large part of it. A and unfortunately, there's a great deal of uh, romanticism and blindness in the non-Indian community which assumes that anything a tribal government is for is good for, for Indians themselves, which is not the case. Any more than it is the case that what's good for California is good for Californians. There's a reason we have federal civil rights laws and a federal constitution to counterbalance the power of state governments. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court has largely neutered such protections when it comes to Native Americans on or off reservations. 
And ICWA, like I said, ICWA applies off reservation. It does not apply to tribal governments. It applies to state governments. So what that means is that if you want to adopt a native child and you're not native yourself, a tribal court can order that perfectly fine. A state court typically cannot. Let me add a second answer to your question. Who is in favor of these? Another part of it is that the trauma and the bad things that happened before its passage have left lasting scars in, in the, uh, the culture and in the mindsets of people. And so as a result, they, they look back at that and they think that's what we're saying is a good thing or something. And, and that's, it's understandable there's this misunderstanding, but that's not what is at issue here. What's at issue here is a federal law that forces states to hurt Indian kids. So we need to, we need to fix that problem. So I, you know, uh, these are always such difficult issues. I really try in trying to think about a solution as to put myself in the shoes of the people who are advocating for the thing that seems to be so antithetical to kids. Is it that they believe that their culture is so important that that it's it's worth these what they might file or externalities instead of the Indian Child Welfare Act? What do you think is a better intervention to get at what it seems to be their 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 fear that their cultures, I believe, are being so at risk and dissipated? How do we how do we is it possible to achieve both objectives while still serving kids? Yes. Uh, so and and you are right that there are a number of people who do think that, that who think that the cultural uh, uh, continuity is imp- more important than the actual safety and welfare of a child. I tend to think that's a very small minority of people, but they're very outspoken. And so that those are the voices that end up in the newspapers. I think the, your your average tribal citizen is every bit as horrified by the outcomes of these of these cases as, as the rest of us are. They just don't know about them. And there's a reason why. Part of it is because the media refuse to discuss the subject, or when they do, they put it in tones of it was a great thing. On the other hand, another reason is because a lot of foster and adoptive families are terrified to speak out. They're told they will lose their foster license if they say anything about it. Uh, They're terrified of it turning into a big national story like the Lexi case did, being very horrific. And and of course, we're talking about tearing up people's families. So they, they take the route of let's keep our heads down. So you know, that, that's a large part of it. How do you fix this problem in a way that respects that? Well, I think it's a complex question, certainly too complex to answer in a single podcast. Um, I think we need, to, uh, we need to eliminate the race-based qualities of ICWA. I think allowing tribal governments control over child welfare cases that happen on reservation is a good thing. And if, I think it's common sense that tribal governments should be responsible for foster care adoptions of the, for children who live on reservation. At the same time, I think we need to revisit the cases that have uh, basically neutralized the Indian Civil Rights Act, which was passed in the 60s, and which the Supreme Court has largely left unenforceable, uh, totally be, by fiat but we need to eliminate that so that people have an opportunity to, to, to seek appellate review when tribal governments harm them on reservation. Um, we need uh, to, to revisit the idea that uh, termination of parental rights is necessary in every adoption case. A lot of the time that's not necessarily true. And there are some arguments for ways of resolving adoption without terminating parental rights totally, which I think could put a lot of people's minds at ease. But I, I think there are many different routes to approach this problem that don't force states to hurt Indian kids, which is what ICWA does.
But it's also worth noting that in a lot of the cases where Indian children have been placed with families of other races or ethnicities, those families are happy to support the, the right, culture right. Uh, and, the, and the passing down of cultural knowledge um, that, uh, that, this, that this might entail. And it's also true that in many of the cases where the kids are either you know, placed with an Indian family who might be from an entirely different tribe, they are not gonna get the kind of uh, cultural uh, upbringing and resources and education uh, that a tribe says that it wants. So that's right, I'm right. not even sure that ICWA really is accomplishing that goal if that's what the advocates are, are interested in. But I did also want to just sort of ask him, like, you know, in the in the few minutes we have left to just talk a little bit more about the current case and what your um, what your hopes and dreams are as far as the potential for Supreme Court review here. Well, this plays into what you just said, because one of the things that the court found unconstitutional was this provision that says that an Indian child has to be adopted by an Indian family, regardless of tribe. And so uh, under under ICWA, a child who is let's say Seminole in ancestry has to be adopted by an Inuit or a Penobscot family before that child can be adopted by a white, black, Asian or Hispanic family. And the court said that's totally irrational. If this law is intended to protect tribes, then it should be tribe by tribe. It should be Cherokee kids adopted by Cherokee adults. It shouldn't be Cherokee kids being adopted by Navajo adults, which is what's going on in this case in the Fifth Circuit, it's a child who's part Cherokee and part Navajo. Now, these are two tribes whose capital cities are as far apart as Paris and Moscow, but, fed but federal law treats them as basically identical because it just regards them as, quote, Indian, end quote. And the whole concept of Indian is a racial category invented by whites in the 19th century as an excuse to steal tribal land. So it's really ridiculous to say that this law is anything other than race-based. Um, this law, this decision from the court, I think is very, I'm optimistic because I think tribes are going to have to ask the court to take the case. And of course, the plaintiffs are going to have to ask the court to take the case to resolve those issues as well. So I am hopeful that the Supreme Court will take this case. It is true, of course, that adoptive families could make agreements if necessary, sign documents with a tribal government promising to uh, raise the child with uh, tribal practices and so forth. But on the other hand, I do think that, I think tribal governments would probably respond to that by saying, you know, white people often don't know much about our culture and they think they do and they don't. And I think that's valid. There's no question that's valid. Oh, I mean, I've, I've talked to some foster families that they, they would love to help, they just don't know how. There's no reason that we could fix, that we could not fix that problem in a way that tribes to see their cultures perpetuated. In fact, the law already basically requires that in the sense that every law, every state in this country uh, prioritizes, quote, the best interests of the child, end quote. And the best interest analysis is, is a kind of an all-purpose, all-factors-considered analysis. And that includes the child's need for education in their tribal culture when necessary. But unfortunately, ICWA overrides the best interests of the child standard. One of the more outrageous things about ICWA is it actually creates literal separate but equal. According to the courts of Texas, California, and other states, there are actually two different best interest standards in the law. There's the white best interest standard, or as the Texas Court of Appeals put it, the Anglo best interest standard. And then there's the Indian best interest standard in which the child's own needs are only considered as one element alongside the tribal government's desires for what happens to a child. 
having two tests by the same name that operate differently based on the child's racial bank background is literally separate but equal. We mm. ought to know better in this country. I mean, the, yeah, I don't think that word best means what they think it means. Uh, I mean, also, just think about the chilling effect this has on would be parent. You know, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a fantastic article on that story that I keep up here on top of my cabinet uh, uh, from the Phoenix New Times. Uh, from a few years ago that talks about how what this ends up doing, what ICWA does is it ends up deterring foster and adoptive families from trying to take care of Indian children. And, and I'm sure there are many, many, many families who, by the way, families who adopt Asian children, families that adopt Black children, families, basically families that adopt across race that are committed to preserve the culture of the children they're adopting. And th but this whole apparatus basically puts all those folks on notice. No question about it. We're going to have a hard time. And I would imagine they just don't pursue it at all. At a minimum, if you're told, well, you can foster this child, but you're going to have a years long court battle on your hands and you'll have to hire lawyers and you'll be in the newspapers and people will be sending you threatening letters anonymously in the mail. I think a lot of people are, are turned off by that. And then when you say, if you say even worse than that, well, you could, as in the Lexi case in California, you could raise this foster child who's six years old. You could raise her for four years, two thirds of her entire life, fall in love with her, have her call you mommy and daddy, have her call your other kids, their brothers and sisters, and then have the child snatched from your arms by the, the state government because the child's uh, skin is the wrong color. In fact, her skin isn't even a different color. It's just that back in 1700, her ancestors had different skin colors. That's what ICWA does. It's, it's disgraceful. Tim, thank you so much for the work you're doing here. Yeah, the, uh, are you kidding me? It really, uh, it, it's really the appropriate title. Well, I, I appreciate you taking the time <laughs> to, to tell people about this because unfortunately, a lot of people don't know about it. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't care. Yeah. And that's really a shame. No, not only do a lot of people not know and a lot of people don't care, but, but what they don't realize is I think that there are people out there who are trying to expand uh, ICWA into other races. I mean, Ian and I have talked on this podcast about um, just opposition to transracial adoption across the board, about you know having different standards for black kids than we have for white kids. Um, there are people who look at ICWA as a model. And so um, you know the work that you're doing to, to stop this discrimination from going on and to work in the in the actual real best interests of kids is so important. So we're we're so happy that you joined us today. Thank you. So this has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer Riley. I'm Ian Rowe. And you can get episodes of this podcast on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again. Bye.